What happens when a blind man, a woman of color, and a child of immigrants get together to discuss how diversity, inclusion, and equity affect your business? Hi everybody, welcome to the Choose Inclusion podcast. I'm UB, and I am the Latino white guy of the group. I'm Nina, I am the woman of color in the group. And I'm Mike, I'm uh, the blind guy. Hey everybody, welcome back to Choose Inclusion. This is UB Siminetti, and as always, I'm joined by my partners in good, Nina and Mike. Hello, team. Hey, everyone. Good afternoon, UB. You're you're using the whole like last name. Like I, I've not heard you say that before. This must be a very important guest we have today. I yeah, you know, it's just it's one of those things, and you know, there's an asteroid heading for Earth, so. It's part of that too. Like, I just want to make sure that, you know, our names are, are steeped and saved somehow in history and, and, you know, when aliens find parts of the planet and yeah. other parts of the universe and, you know, maybe they'll make it to the Milky Way as our friend Joe likes to say. So we, uh, <laughs> we need to put our, put this on radio broadcast is what you're saying. So it lasts Yeah, forever. basically. Okay. It's just like some kind of subspace channel. So coming, um, coming to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and the radio near you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, all right. So here we are. Uh, we are excited to, th- this is going to be a really fascinating conversation given present day events. Um, but, but a lot of things that, you know, I think a lot of our audience are, are focused in on, uh, particularly as it relates to sort of the younger generations, right, who are now coming into the workforce. So uh, our guest today is Manu Meal, CEO of Bridge USA, recent graduate of UC Berkeley. And um, just real quick, Bridge USA represents about, I think, 30 college and university chapters, and their mission is to invest in the future of democracy by really developing this next generation of engaged and constructive citizens. And so we're really excited to talk about that. So welcome to the show, Manu, how are you? Hey, it's 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 lovely to be here. Thank you, Yubi, Nick, and Nina, and, and Mike. And I like how you all framed yourself as the, the partners of good, uh, because <laughs> if, it makes it sound like you're an Avengers task force. <laughs> we try to be, because I, I, I used to say partners in crime, and I'm like, ah, oh, that just doesn't sound good. <laughs> I, I how come I didn't know we had capes? I didn't get a cape. How come I didn't get a cape? Yours is in the mail. Oh. You didn't get it yet? Oh man. It's coming, Mike, I promise. But you Maybe have the it's... secret cane. You have the cane of power. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just gonna say it. Um anyway, let's focus back on our guest. Hello, my I love so, it. You all, you all got to call this "Shoot the Shit" podcast, right? That's <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. That should be our new tagline. Um, well, so so let's talk about Bridge USA first. Like, let's dive into that because it's it's I, I love it, and I just want people to understand what it is. Absolutely. So I, you know, especially in this this moment in our country's history, when you're thinking about 
what are you doing in your personal life? What are you doing in your sort of purpose to at least make a small difference? Bridge is basically my way and my uh, fellow student leaders and friends way of trying to make a small difference in what I think is one of the most polarized times in American history. But I also don't think it's one of the most polarized times. It's, it's, there's really a lot of hope in different uh, nooks and crannies in the country. It's about where you're looking. We, we had founded Bridge um, UB in, in our freshman year when in 2017, uh, there were uh, some wonderful students by the name of Roger Karma and Cortland Carpenter, respectively at Notre Dame and, and CU Boulder. And then they brought over the concept to Berkeley. And that's where sort of I entered into the picture. And the, the real focus of Bridge is how can we essentially affect the sensibilities of young people at this moment in time? But importantly, how can we create and help inculcate values of empathy, engagement, respect, constructive dialogue. It seems like if you haven't been watching the news, it's in short supply these days. And our goal is, look, we don't have to wait for these problems to show up, you know, 30 years down in the future, when again, we talk about one of the most polarized times in history, we can actually preempt those problems. Hence, we can actually invest in the future of our democracy right now. I I love what you guys are doing. I really do, Manu. And I, what I was really um, encouraged to hear is actually Again, because when I heard, you know, <clears throat> UC Berkeley, you know, of course, I'm thinking, oh, well, this is this is great for elite schools, that sort of thing. But uh, you guys constructed this very strategically. Can you explain more about that? Yeah, so there, there's a couple of things that we do. There's there's three important ways to look at bridge. First is what is our actual theory of change? And, and, and specifically to your point, uh, Mike, is how does that theory of change apply to the actual you know, quote unquote, American people. And when I say quote unquote, American people, I mean, the folks that aren't just in your private elite schools where we often pay the most attention. Now, this isn't just me uh, 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 talking about elite private schools because I didn't get into Harvard. But what I'm saying is that there is a huge population that we often leave out of the higher ed conversation. And that's students in our public state schools, in our community colleges, in our private institutions that are a lot smaller. So when we're talking about the three things that we're looking at bridge, um, first is the theory of change. Can we actually affect political culture, not only on college campuses, but in local communities? And the way that we're going about doing that is we're setting up these chapters and these chapters are truly the bread and butter bridge. That's where the real change happens. That's where the civic engagement takes place. And only if you could meet some of those wonderful student leaders on those college campuses, I mean, they're truly tremendous because they're actually looking at how they can create coalitions. It's something that we need in Congress right now. The, the second thing that bridge does is focuses on specifically creating what we're calling an international movement. The problem with the the problem that Bridge is trying to address of a, a democratic backsliding in our politics, that's not just an American problem, that's a global problem. And that's why our friends in East Africa have launched Bridge Africa and our friends in Western Europe have launched Bridge Europe. Um, and the third and most important thing I think about Bridge is it has to be an organization and a mission led by young people for young people. That's crucial. If we're thinking about actually creating change and how young people are thinking about our politics. If we're thinking about how we can actually engage those people that feel currently distanced from the system, students like myself that necessarily didn't have a habit of cultural engagement, students that don't necessarily recognize how the political system can be responsive, we've got to figure out how to bridge that gap. And ultimately, our work initially focused on these public state schools because, you know, outside of the fact that we're at Berkeley, the fact is that, you know, those students are the people that are going to enact your innovations. Those are the students that are going to have to deal with the future that we're carving today. So it's crucial for us to actually think about a broad swath of the population. Just one last thing I would say, 
is this actually also is electoral consequences. You know, when you think about those that elected President Donald Trump in 2016, and you can fall on either side of that debate, but the fact is a lot of those folks were alienated. They felt left behind. And we have an opportunity to fix that. We don't have to wait for that problem to again reassure in this current generation. And that's what our work is focused on. So one of the things that I am really want you to explain to us, because right sure. now we're at, you know, the most politically divided time we've ever been in. I, I blame a lot of it on social media personally. Uh, the way these algorithms work, it basically puts us into our own bubbles even more so than we already were. And um, one of the things that you've been working on is what they call the, what you're calling the bridge, the bridge mindset. And uh, I was wondering if you could share with our audience what exactly that is and why, why is it important? That, that's a great question. So bridge mindset really quickly, there's three pillars to it. One, you've got to be empathetic. So you will have to actually understand and live in the shoes of the other person when you're talking to them. Two, you have to engage constructively. What we mean by constructive engagement is actually thinking about our politics in an ideologically diverse way. And three, you have to be solution oriented. Now, the problem with social media, Nina, is, is not necessarily that it's on face a bad tool. You know, when people were creating it, they were thinking about human connection. When you look at the flip side of the coin, we're also at one of the most connected periods in American history. We're also at one of the periods where people have vast access to technology. We've never been at a period in American history more than now where you can reach people across the country in an instant. So that can both be a great thing and that can be a really corrosive thing. And I think we've got to think about how we can actually harness the positive side of social media because I think the, tr the potential is, is immense. If you can reach everyone in a democracy, you can actually try to achieve some sort of representation. Now, the, the problem with social media, which you pointed out, is that one, it's profit-driven, so it rewards ideological echo chambers. It rewards people sharing the exact same thing that they believe in and not stepping out of those bubbles. Second, I think it rewards impersonal engagement. When you're on social media, you can hide behind your computer and say whatever you want. Uh, and, and that is sometimes not the most constructive thing. So what the way that we're looking at social media and we're thinking about how we can actually train young people is not actually changing social media. We think that this is actually more of a consumer side problem. Take chips, for example, in, in the 80s and 70s, when Coke and chips and Lay's had this huge marketing campaign, you had an explosion of obesity in this country. And the response wasn't to, you know, stop eating chips, it was to put out consumer diet labels, it was to regulate what we're eating, it was to develop a food diet. I think we need an information diet, we need to be responsible for what we're consuming. And we're assuming that these tech companies have so much control when the fact is that they actually rest on your habits and your persona. If suddenly tomorrow everyone said, we want to talk with someone that we disagree with on Facebook, they would change their algorithms because that's where the money would go. So our goal is, can we affect the mindset of those that are actually consuming social media to make it more effective, constructive, and importantly, empathetic? That's, yeah, that, I love that because that is, I mean, that aligns with the more you know, right? Like let's, let's give people knowledge. Let's give people an opportunity to learn more about what it is they're using and then sort of give them the choice. Like, it, it, cause I love, you know, you, you talk about marketing empathy to young people. I mean, it, it, it's, it's partly that it's like, we want to make, we still want to make people better. Yep. And, and so how do we do that? Yeah. How um, do you market empathy? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. if I knew, if I knew the answer, 
I would just, it would be over, you know? I mean, I think, I think, I think, I think everyone's trying to, or at least, at least, as you said, the partners of good are trying. And uh, what I would say is, is there's a couple things to marketing empathy. And I think marketing empathy makes it seem a little bit more technocratic than what we actually mean. I think there's two assumptions to marketing empathy. First, and this goes to your social media point, Nina, is that uh, we forget that politics at the end of the day is about people. The fundamental unit of democracy is a person. No matter how much technological innovation we pursue, the fact is that someone's casting a ballot, right? And the fact is that we're talking to people. It's about relationships. And I think that returning to that mindset that politics is about relationship and recognizing that the fundamental unit of democracy can really help us weave that social fabric. The, the second thing that I would say and the assumption behind marketing quote unquote empathy is that there has not been a single person that I've ever talked to that said, oh, you know what? Creating empathetic people is a bad idea. Empathy is a really bad idea. We should, we should just not have empathy. Um, what that tells me is that most people believe in empathy. Most people like empathy. The, the challenge, and this is, so that's the second assumption is that people believe and want it. The challenge in all of this is not getting people to buy into empathy. It's getting people to practice empathy. And I think that's what's lacking in our politics where we've entered this 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 stage in our politics with what my friends and I call uh, uh, performative activism, right? It's this idea that, you know, if we post something on social media, it's done deal. It's perfect. We've participated. You remember on, on Instagram that one day when Black Lives Matter was sort of uh, really peaking in terms of the protest potential, there were everyone posted a black tile. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. What I'm saying, though, is that it often absolves our, our responsibility of creating real tangible change. And so our goal is how can we prevent people from just being performative about empathy, but actually acting empathy? And, and for us, marketing empathy essentially means we've got to demonstrate what it looks like. We have to show people actually actually embodying empathy. And then so we've launched a couple of campaigns. First one we're calling Empathy in Action, literally like hair famous people. And this is what empathy looks like. And it's a good thing. We should be prideful of being empathetic. There's this there's this belief right now that if you're empathetic, it means you're you're kumbaya and cushy. And <laughs> frankly, you know what? I think we need a little bit of kumbaya in our politics right now because I don't know if you've turned on the news, but it's it's a little frightening. Uh, but th th that's what I would say is about marketing empathy. It's not necessarily about demonstrating the need for empathy. It's about showing it in action so that you can actually embody it. And when people actually start to truly and authentically embrace what it means to be an empathetic actor, I think you can achieve a lot of change in our politics and just in society writ large. I totally agree with that, Manu. And I, I so many of our um, the diversity, equity, inclusion guests that we have on that are practitioners and responsible for uh, metrics, solid metrics within you know the Fortune 10,000 space. It's all about. So how do you how do you talk about these initiatives of ethnic, gender, uh, uh, LGBTQ plus, uh, veterans, people with disabilities? Like how do you, how do you talk about that? You know from a um, theoretical initiative to a practical, like this is where the rubber meets the road. And, and to me, uh, it, it always comes down to, you could talk, you could talk about hiring, uh, people who are blind or people who are black or people, you know, whatever category it's, it's all about, are you, what, what are you actively doing to affect those hiring numbers? And then more importantly, then retaining those numbers, and so what you're talking about is like, okay, it's great to theoretically talk about this. Uh, what are the actionable, uh, tactical uh, roadmap items that we can affect? Is that, is that true? 
Yes. So I, I couldn't agree more with what you said. And I would, I, and I love the fact that you brought in diversity and inclusion in this conversation. So uh, just quickly, it, it sort of, you know, when you look at corporate CSR strategies, right? When you think about branding, you think about marketing. And the question you got to ask is how much of that is actually tangible and how much of that is performative? It goes to that same tr strain of, you know, performative activism. Uh, what I would say is, um, is Mike, that, you know, when you're thinking about hiring someone, when you're thinking about your diversity and inclusion efforts, whether it's increasing Indian Americans, African Americans, disabled folks, um, queer folks, the, the fact is you have to first ask, what is the purpose? Why am I doing this? What's the need? You know, is it just to show that I have a person of color on my board? If that's the case, you're not actually truly pursuing diversity and inclusion. But if the case is I want to bind the power of diversity to the power of my product, business, platform, whatever it may be, that's when I think you can have something actually transformative because you have to ask yourself, why is it that folks are advocating for diversity and inclusion? It's not just so that you can have a, a mural of a bunch of people that look different. It's because the fact is that when we combine and studies show this, Harvard Business Review came out with this last month about the power of diversity in business and they had actual metrics. The fact is that when you bring together, for example, different perspectives in this call, we have people of all different backgrounds in different geographies. Well, I guess not you all, you all are all from Colorado, but at least Emily and I are, are from California. The fact is that when you bring in those different perspectives, it can actually achieve something. And, and that, that gets the fact that when you're thinking about those inclusion efforts, you have to be authentically genuine about it and actually wear it on your sleeve. We are hiring diverse folks because it's going to make our company better, not so that we can look better. And that will naturally lead to a more diverse culture. And it's something that we're working on at Bridge. We're not perfect at it. We have a lot of failings in our diversity sector when it comes to actually having, you know, for example, African-American folks. We would like to have more people of color. We would like to have people that feel distanced from the system. But we're approaching it in a way where we recognize that this movement cannot succeed without being diverse. It's not just that this movement needs diverse people so that we can look better. You feel me? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that, yeah, like I think what's so cool about the younger generation coming up, I mean, I think we talked about on on the call before this that you you just figured out you were Gen Z. Um, <laughs> Working on it. <laughs> but I mean, I think overall, we've just seen the older generations fail us, right? I mean, there's a lot of blame to go around, but I mean, you know, part of the reason we are in such a kind of dire place economically, environmentally, socially, everything can be drawn back to previous generations. And one of the things that we know that companies are talking about a lot is like, okay, you know, if we're growing, we need to figure out like, how do we make sure that we're inclusive of a new generation coming in? Um, so I guess this is kind of like a two-part question, but like one, one what, is it, what is it that Gen Z is looking for in the future of work? Um, and then two, what, are, what should companies be doing to make sure they're meeting those needs? Yeah, so, so you know, the caveat here obviously is that uh, Gen Z, obviously, as, as I'm sure uh, we like to see of every group is not just a monolith, but I will do my best in representing uh, all the Gen Z folks I know. And, and I would say a couple of things. I think first, in terms of what they're looking for, uh, Gen Z, I think, is one of the most altruistic generations that we've seen in a while. And I think there's a reason for that. When you look at someone my age, I'm 21 right now, there are four major events that have defined my entire life. And those are 9-11, the Great Recession 2008, the 2016 election, and now the 2020 election combined with a it, it, with one of the most deadliest pandemics in history. Now, when you think about the impact that that has on someone when they're growing up, 
it's not one of transformative progress and and boundless optimism, right? It's 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 you have to really try to be hopeful at this time. And and so what that tells me, and when I've traveled to all of these different college campuses, met wonderful, wonderful people and young people, is that they want to create a future that works, that just works, you know? And 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 that tells me that they're altruistic. The second thing that that Gen Z is looking for when they're looking at companies is they're actually holding folks uh, to the fact of CSR pillars, you know. It, 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 we can no longer have a corporate world where CSR is mainly a talking point, diversity and inclusion are mainly talking points, uh, but they're not actually enacted. Young people are actually looking to see, you know, there was a study out by Brookings, I think a year ago, that looked at the attitudes of, of Gen Z with respect to what they thought about these CSR initiatives. And they actually echoed what I'm sort of saying on this call, which is that they actually care about this stuff, right? This is not just some high-end marketing campaign. And so that tells you that they're actually looking at the social impact of companies. And when you look at sort of the balance sheet, um, it's not just profit that Gen Z is looking at. They're also looking at how are you using your assets to make a difference in the lives of people around you, which ultimately begs the question of purpose, right? What is the purpose of a corporation? What is the purpose of your company? Why do you exist? Asking those hard questions. The, the second question that you asked, Nina, which I think is, is, is really important is what can they actually do to meet those needs? And it's sort of a flip side of everything that we just talked about. You know, when you're thinking about catering to young people and you're thinking about catering to Gen Z, don't just cater to them because you've got to and they're the next generation. And if you don't cater to them, you're going to run out of money. Um, shift your business strategy. I'll give you a perfect example of this. Uh, look at Microsoft. Um, Microsoft 10 years ago was very much focused on developing software and hardware to build better computers. That was their goal. They've now come back to that, but with a twist. Now their purpose is more focused on, okay, how can we build the best PC, but then also expand and make sure that this PC is accessible to every person in America. Satya Nadella, their CEO, specifically talks about the need to craft Microsoft to adapt to the 21st century. So actually ingraining those shifts into your business plan, into your model. Uh, and the second thing that I would just say, and then I'll be quiet, is that when you're thinking about actually catering to young people, you have to think about uh, what is the impact that you're having, but importantly, what type of impact it is. Uh, when you look at what are the best jobs and what are the jobs that Gen Z is seeking out of college, in the 80s, it used to be investment banking. In the 2000s and, the, and, and in uh, the 2020 decade, uh, data is showing that they're actually looking at nonprofits. They're looking at NGOs, and that should tell you something about the attitudes. Well, Manu, I, I, I want to throw a yes. In your lifetime, you have been exposed to uh, a lot, but I, I dare say, um, and this, was, this came from my six-year-old granddaughter yesterday as we were hiking the mountains and she was collecting pine cones and talking about doing a project uh, where she could recycle some plastics with these pine cones. Mm. I dare say your generation um, is probably more envi environmentally conscious than any other uh, before you. Absolutely. I, I, I would just, so, sorry, Mike, were you gonna say something else to that? Oh, you I, I was, I was just, I, you know, I've got a lot, to, I, there's so much more I want to talk to you about that. I just wanted to throw that out there because I, I just, you know, with everything else that you've uh, talked about, I dare say just on the flip side oh, is, yeah. is just that. Right. So, uh, but no, I just, uh, wanted to throw that out there too. Your generation has to fix uh, a lot of what the us previous generations have broke. So, which goes back to the nonprofit and NGO. To, to, uh, to absolve your generation of some responsibility. I think every generation, 
<laughs> is always is always saying that the next generation is going to be better. And I would say, honestly, that there's a lot of hope and there's always good in what some generations are doing. It's just about what you're focused on. And I mean, to your, to your granddaughter's point, by the way, um, other than the fact that I also love the mountains in Colorado, the air is crisp, clean, and not like the wildfires in San Francisco. Uh, what I would, the only thing I would add to that is, you know, the fact that she's thinking about these things uh, demonstrates the power of education, and it talks of, and it shows the need to actually have shifts in curriculum. And 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 I'm sure your granddaughter is very impressionable, as is uh, every young person. And and it's about their environment. And so it's both a parental and familial responsibility, but also the responsibility of our educational institutions where Bridge is focused. I mean, I think it's like. It's so fascinating to me that, you know, there, there can be altruism and optimism at a time <laughs> of this, that everything that's been going on in 2020. I think one of the things I really struggle with when it, talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion and, and the kinds of work that Mike, Gibby, and I do is that it, it almost seems like, you know, while our, the three of our mindset is very much like we're doing this because it's great for everyone, we've definitely, you know, kind of get pigeonholed sometimes into saying like, oh, well, what you're doing is, is at the expense of able-bodied white guys, right? Mm -hmm. Able-bodied, cisgendered, straight white guys. And, um, and that's a, it, it definitely like puts me on the defensive when I, when I get approached that way, because that is something that I've experienced a lot with some of the work that I've done. But what you're doing is you're, you're taking a step back and saying that your generation is actually going to try and have real conversations across this. And I think that's so powerful. And honestly, I just found it shocking because I never thought we could go to that place again after seeing how much the world changed in the last year or four years, really. Well, I mean, Nina, I would just say that when it comes to altruism and, op uh, and optimism, I mean, the question that I ought to ask you is, uh, what choice do we have, right? Like, is there, there is no alternative other than to being hopeful and optimistic. And, and again, it gets back to, to a question of purpose. I think a lot of people in my generation are seeking purpose. And, and when I mean purpose, I mean answering the questions of why do we exist? What is our actual goal here? What is our impact? And, and that, that, is, that is, I think, a tremendous asset that we have to tap into. And we have to start showing young people a way to mobilize and capitalize on their purpose and their journey to find that. Because if suddenly you can have thousands of people across the United States acting with purpose, that is huge. Again, the fundamental unit of any democracy, country, business, corporation is the person. And so if people have purpose, you can unlock and achieve a lot. How do you translate that into, so, you know, another thing that sticks out is um, something you said on, one of, on our pre-call about listening to respond, or no, listening to listen instead of listening to respond. Yeah. Um, you know, and, but also, you know, er, these things that you're talking about, these conversations that, that um, and, and sort of this mindset that you're describing, like, how do you approach or how do these people, these younger people who are, are you all are engaging with and sort of preparing for business, right? That, that transition into business, how do you prepare them to have conversations Sure. that are about listening to listen, that are filled with empathy, that are driven by that, you know, and that are coming up against, you know, for lack of a better word, sort of this patriarchy or this, you know, curmudgeon, I'm set in my ways and this is how it has to be. And 
you know, how, how do these, how do you start to make that transition? How do we get that? How do we get those people, those, uh-huh. those older generations to listen and respond? Well, everyone is set in their ways until they, until they actually talk to someone that truly challenges their beliefs. I mean, right now, uh, when you're because of social media and because of our echo chambers and because of the way that the news works, uh, the reason why we're set in the set in our ways is because, frankly, there are very few opportunities to actually talk to one another and listen to listen. Um, you know, y'all, this isn't some profound new thing that we're talking about, right? Like empathy, listening to listen, conversations. This is not novel. This isn't, you know, some invention. This is just a recall to our purpose and principles. I mean, when you think about what has actually gotten this country to the point where it is today, regardless of our technological changes, regardless of the the historical events, the consequences, the material and structural changes, the fact is that what got the United States to this point are our values. It's tolerance, empathy, humility, respect, courage, ambition. You know, those are things that we just have to instill. And when you specifically ask the question, uh, UB, of, you know, how do you actually get these folks that are that are set in their ways to change? Um, we've seen that when you actually have conversations with people, it's a profound concept. It's dramatic, actually, how willing people are. What we do in our bridge discussions, I'll give you a great example of this. What we do in our bridge discussions when you actually come into the room is first you lay out the norms. We've got four norms, right? We've got uh, listen to listen. A person does not represent their social group just themselves. You have to actually talk about facts. And importantly, you have to embody empathy in your approach. When you actually outline those norms, what we found, and also social science backs this up, which is why we're using a research-based approach to reinvent civic engagement on campuses, is that people are actually subconsciously primed to abide by those norms. And the second thing that we do is when a conversation actually starts, you have a moderator. And whenever someone is talking to another person, they actually never address that person directly. They address the moderator. So you deflect the person out of that conversation. And obviously personality, personhood is important, but when we're talking about such tough issues like abortion, sexual assault, immigration, healthcare, um, we have to achieve policy solutions that actually address and lead to material change. And so our discussions operate in that way where you lay out the norms, allow students to actually practice those norms. And then finally, you allow students to apply those norms and that's when they graduate college. So what we do with the Bridge Institute for anyone that's listening, if you got a if you got a company, look out for the Bridge Institute. What we do is we basically take our students that are practicing those skills, and then we plug them into internships, job opportunities. If you're looking to hire someone that's empathetic, engaged, constructive, we've got an entire pool of these students. And what we found is that when you actually help people apply these skills, when you help them apply what listening to listening means, it helps them actually change their outlook on this. And so my short answer to this would just be. People just aren't forced to get out of their ways. They, they aren't actually exposed to those tough conversations. When they're not exposed, there is no chance of being removed from your beliefs. You have to actually force those conversations to happen. And if you can force them within a proper framework, you can achieve a lot. I, I love the model. And I think that um, any company in the Fortune 10,000 could uh, benefit greatly by uh, leveraging how you do what you do to further enhance their DE&I uh, uh, programs in general. I, I, I really like that approach. Um, I'm, I, I'm, so I'm, I'm a bit, 
uh, gosh, how do, how do I approach this, this question or this conversation? So, because, you know, like it's in high school, if you're on the debate team, like it's actually taught that, uh, for a, an actual debate to happen, um, you know, you cannot talk over uh, one another. You have to allow the other person to talk. Um, so that's taught in at the high school level, right? Secondary level um, to for debate. And yet uh, when we watch, um, you know, our presidential or even vice presidential debates, it's, it's oh, gosh. <laughs> fascinating to me that, you know, so I love what you're talking about with these principles, but yet those principles do not, you know, they're, they're not being adhered to by call it, uh, I don't know, the older generation. I don't know what you call that, but it's, it's fascinating that those same principles aren't being followed. However, I do believe the fortune 10,000 space would be eager to adopt what you're, uh, what you're teaching at the, at, at your uh, uh, bridge Institute. You know, I, I would just say that this gets exactly to the point about training the next generation of leaders. What you just talked about there, Mike, is that when we look at, for example, these debates, right, and you look at the leaders that are that are uh, uh, discussing engaging, um, the fact is that while you could argue how much power a president actually has in this country, there is definitively evidence to demonstrate that leadership matters because people are looking up and they're role modeling. And so our goal is let's get the next generation of leaders to adopt these norms so that the generation after that has real effective role models to look up to. And I think that's huge, especially when you're in a formative age. The other thing I would say is when you talked about, for example, their DNI initiatives, when you're a company and you're thinking about having a team, you've got five people on your team, they're working towards a project. Those five people come from different parts of the world. Let's say you're in a Zoom world. So they're definitely living in different parts of the world and they're Zooming in. How do you get this team to focus on a collective objective? That's bridge. The, the mindset and the goals used, the techniques used when you're actually assessing, okay, what is person A, B, C, D, E, and F value? How am I going to recognize what they value, create common purpose out of those shared differences, and then get everyone to work towards a goal? I think that it not only leads to better decision-making, but actually leads to real output. And, and that's what we've noticed in our discussions, dialogues, and importantly, in our institute placements. When we're actually placing students, the, 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 companies and, and the NGOs that we're right now, we're only focused on NGOs. They, they're saying that, you know, these kids are actually creating real impact because they know how to work in a team and they know how to disagree. How profound is that? <laughs> it's not even that profound, right? Like we're helping create kids that know how to disagree. That's, I mean, apparently that's a skill in, 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 a, in a, uh, not in play these days, but it's, it's something that's crucial. So when you're just talking about making business decisions, I think the bridge mindset is absolutely and necessarily applicable. Mana, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, I, in a year that's really just kind of torn me apart, this is a very great way to feel optimistic again. So just wanna thank you for, for joining us today and all the work you're doing. Uh, you know, you are definitely gonna have a huge impact on, on the next generation of leaders. And I'm so glad that you're bringing in this whole strategy to, to change how businesses work, how politics work, how kind of leadership works around the country. So thank you again for joining us. Hey, I, I, am, I am truly thankful to you, Mike and Yubi for, for the platform and for trusting a 21 year old to talk on your podcast with far more qualified folks like yourselves. Um, the, the only thing that I would say, and, and at least the reason why I feel hopeful is honestly because of the people that I surround myself with, I, I could not be here 
And Bridge wouldn't be here without our amazing team. And I truly mean this. I mean, I found some of my best friends out of this work. And so for me, this is not just work. This is a lifestyle for me as of yet. And, and it really matters to me. So I appreciate the time. Thank you to Emily from the Artemis Agency being on and appreciate you. Well, Mon, I, I want you to recognize, so the, uh, leadership has uh, no bearing on being 21 at all. You are an absolute leader. And uh, I look forward to hearing more uh, from your journey uh, as, as time continues. So thanks for being on. And uh, I hope our listeners uh, take a good hard look at Bridge because I think it's an amazing asset. So thank you. Thank you. Thank and you. Thanks to all our listeners. Please uh, continue to stay tuned into us. We're going to be posting more podcasts up regularly on chooseinclusion.com. You can also check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and uh, on our website. So follow us on at Choose Inclusion Podcast at uh, Twitter, and uh, we'll see you all next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Choose Inclusion podcast. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can see closed captioning for this podcast on our YouTube channel. You can find us online on our website, chooseinclusion.com, and contact us on Twitter at chooseinclusion.